1985, the Washington Redskins, now known as the Washington football team, sold out every game. Tickets were in such hot demand, fans spent 25 years on the waiting list. A TV station called Flagship International Sports Television took a novel approach. They sent invitations to a random list of lucky fans to come to a game for free, signed by the owner, I am Detno. When they arrived, they were treated like royalty. Cheerleaders and team mascots introduced them to the head of marketing who said, Ladies and gentlemen, we got a special surprise for you. You're all under arrest. Doors burst open. Armed police rushed in. The whole thing was a sting operation. The list wasn't random. They were all fugitives from the law. And they weren't cheerleaders, mascots, and marketing executives. They were all U.S. Marshals. The operation was as successful as it was unconventional. 101 criminals wanted for murder, assault, and robbery were arrested at a fraction of the usual cost of pursuing a fugitive. What made it so effective? Police had fun with it. They played. They had fun in their designated roles. They played with the details that might have seemed frivolous but actually made a difference. Flagship International Sports Television, the fictional TV station with the initials of the police group, FIST, Fugitive Investigative Strike Team. Not to be confused with the Federation of Interstate Truckers from the Sylvester Stallone movie of the same name. The owner, I am Detnow, an anagram of I am Wanted. The business manager each fugitive first spoke to about the free tickets was Marcus Cran, C-R-A-N, narc spelled backwards. The cheerleaders were female U.S. Marshals, greeting the fugitives with a pat-down disguised as a hug. The story was the subject of an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary and has been written about in books like Dave Trott's Creative Blindness. It was even used as an opening plot device in The Simpsons, where Chief Wiggum targets people with unpaid parking tickets by telling them they won a raffle for a speedboat. Mmm, speedboat. Well, perhaps an unlikely source of inspiration, the U.S. Marshal's effort is a perfect example of why play is so powerful. Play helps us learn. It makes us more creative, more cooperative, and more likely to find happiness. Play makes us more likely to find novel solutions to problems. It's as fundamental to our biology as the need to sleep or eat, yet it's increasingly being deprioritized in both childhood and adulthood. Why is it so important to play? Are we forgetting how to play? And how do we bring a playful mindset to our work, like the U.S. Marshals did? This week, we've pulled together stories from play experts, business leaders, artists, designers, and creators to help us answer these questions, including a one-on-one interview with Dr. Bo Stierna Thompson, the chair of learning through play at the Lego Foundation. Yes, Lego. Friend to children, enemy to bare feet. Don't miss it. I'm not as talented as Rashida Jones or as smart as Bill Gates, but I am Scott Herms, and this is Working Better. What is play? The short answer is, it's more than you might think. Stuart Brown is the founder of the National Institute for Play and the author of Play, a definitive work in the world of play research. Stuart calls play the stick that stirs the drink. It is the basis of all art, games, books, sports, movies, fashion, fun, and wonder. In short, the basis of what we think of as civilization. Damn. That's a lot of responsibility for something that's supposed to be fun. Stuart Brown was giving a presentation about the importance of play to a group of engineers at Hewlett-Packard. 
he preferred to not define play because it's so varied and even pre-verbal. His colleague told him, Stuart, these are engineers. They're people of systems. If you go in there insisting they care about something that you refuse to define, they'll eat you alive. He's not wrong. We engineers are as hungry as we are opinionated about tabs versus spaces. Tabs for life. Beginning at that presentation and ever since, Stuart Brown has defined play via the following seven principles. Number one, play is something you do for its own sake. Stuart Brown calls it apparent purposelessness. True play is its own reward. It doesn't require a payoff to exist. I don't love jigsaw puzzles because I get a Hershey kiss every time I connect a piece. The moment I finish a puzzle, I do the same thing we all do. First, I ask anyone within earshot, Did you notice I completed the puzzle? Then, after letting it sit out for far too long, I undo my achievement piece by piece. The puzzle returns to its box, having technically accomplished nothing beyond decreasing the amount of free table space in my living room. So true play means we play for the sake of playing. Number two, play is voluntary. It's self-directed. We want to explore things for ourselves. That's why virtually every parent has watched their child completely disregard a carefully selected gift in favor of the box it came in. Number three, play is inherently attractive. It's fun. It's satisfying in some way. Laughing feels good. Therefore, comedy exists. Ruthlessly bankrupting your children feels so good. Therefore, monopoly exists. Number four, play frees us from time. It's like the old saying goes, time flies when we engage our prefrontal cortex in immersive free-thinking play. <laughs> Number five is similar. Play makes us less self-conscious. When we're fully engaged in play, our attention shifts away from the things we might normally be self-conscious about. At a wedding reception, it's the difference in how you feel walking onto the dance floor versus walking off. The internal monologue, ah, everyone can tell my shoes are dumb, can transform into, I think I'm actually getting pretty decent at the worm, over four songs or four beers, whichever comes first. Number six, play has the potential for improvisation. Play means welcoming change in new directions. We try connecting seemingly unrelated things. In 1944, Percy Spencer, an engineer working on a new radar technology for the U.S. military, noticed a chocolate bar in his pocket that had somehow spontaneously melted during an experiment. Where many might have ignored the oddity, Percy Spencer's desire to improvise, to follow his curiosity, and continue playing eventually led to the innovation of the microwave. So thanks for playing, Percy Spencer. This morning's bagel bites were a lifesaver. And finally, number seven, we want play to continue. If I lose a game of gin rummy to my daughter, I insist on extending the rules of our competition to best of two or three or three of five or four of seven or until the sun goes down or comes back up again. Not because I genuinely think I have a chance because I don't. Playing gin rummy is fun and I don't want it to stop. So what happens when we stop playing? Stuart Brown says the opposite of play isn't work, it's depression. Here's Peter Gray, another leading psychologist and researcher in the field of play, speaking at a TED event. Dr. Gray makes the case that we're increasingly not treating play for what it is, one of humanity's most extraordinary gifts. Over the last 50 to 60 years, we've been gradually taking that gift away. 
The best evidence for this comes from the use of standardized clinical assessment questionnaires. Based on such assessments, five to eight times as many children today suffer from major depression or from a clinically significant anxiety disorder as was true in the 1950s. Dr. Gray and many like him say we need to challenge our assumptions that kids always learn best from adults and allow for more freedom and true self-directed play in children. We need to better understand the extraordinary things that happen to our brains when we play and perhaps more importantly what happens when we don't particularly as children grow into adults. Most businesses, as a general rule, worship efficiency like a Labrador retriever worships a tennis ball, wholly and unconditionally. So when it comes to the idea of play, it's easy to label it as frivolous, wasteful, and distracting. Or potentially worse, play is seen as a box to check with an office ping pong table. Now, nothing against ping pong tables, we have one in our office that no one is using right now, you know, pandemic. Stuart Brown argues that part of the problem is that we often misunderstand the relationship of work and play. Brown says they're not opposites. He says they're more like the timbers that keep our house from collapsing down on top of us. He argues that we should think of play as a mindset rather than an activity, that play shouldn't be the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down, but rather part of the medicine itself. So what does it look like to bring more of a play mindset into work? As we asked ourselves that question, our team was simultaneously working on the final episode of this season, profiling the labs team here at Kin Carta. The lab started as Solstice Labs years ago and was designed as a dedicated part of the team to experiment with emerging technology and ultimately share what we learn with our clients. As I speak, our labs teams are experimenting with ideas about mental health and social distance that we talked about way back in episode two. I'll pause while you go listen to it now. Okay, glad you're back. So we're working on these two separate episodes and it hit us. Part of what makes labs tick is a desire to play. Past labs teams have built smart ping pong tables, a virtual Coco the gorilla who uses AI to teach sign language, blockchain based employee recognition systems, chatbots, mixed reality games, all kinds of fun stuff. The projects are completely voluntary, self-directed, inherently attractive, open to improvisation, and detached from the same kind of clear purpose of a client project. We love to tinker. We love to discover new possibilities. And when we remove some of the inevitable requirements of the usual work, we explore new ways of using our specialized skill set and have some fun in the process. So why do it? Why bring this type of play mindset to work? If it's so ingrained in us biologically, there must be some functional reason for our love of play, right? In childhood, play helps us make new connections and discoveries. A child learns what a firefighter is at school. She goes home to play and decides that her stuffed octopus is now a firefighter because she's got long arms and is good with water. Play allows us to draw connections and connect new pieces of the puzzle about how the world works. The same thing is true of a labs project. I would say it's very freeing. That's Lauren Blackburn, a senior UX designer here at Kin and Carta and a swell person in her own right. Just like the lack of pressure <laughs> to, to perform and deliver something totally buttoned up kind of encourages you to free up the way you're thinking or approaching a problem a bit. 
in a way that's different from maybe how a team might approach a, a project in a typical day-to-day. We also spoke with Dave Clark, Senior Director of Service Design and Digital Strategy here at Ken and Carta, who said the connections made in something like a labs project are invaluable. It allows us to get ahead and, and learn and experiment about what the technologies are good at, not necessarily aligning them to a problem, but figuring out what problems do they solve well. In a similar sense, play helps us practice skills we may need later on, but without the risk. Grizzly bear cubs wrestle because it helps them practice how to hunt, fight, and defend themselves. When they're under threat, it's not the first time they've ever fought on their hind legs or tried to swipe with their paws. It works the same way for humans, except, you know, minus the paws and bite strength powerful enough to crush a bowling ball. Note to self, cancel Grizzly Bowling League. For us, building things like our own cryptocurrency or an AI-based sign language program gives us the chance to experiment and to learn in an environment that's low on risk, but great for hands-on learning. It's valuable when the client comes and says, I need expertise on how to apply these new technologies. I don't even know what to do with sensors, but I have a feeling that it might be applicable in, in, in my industry. And then now we have some a group of people who've been working on this and who have, you know, can, can bring their expertise and say, this is the type of thing that sensors can really do well. And we now know enough about how to use them because we've built things with them. It's also why play makes us more creative. Steve Jobs once described creativity as connecting the seemingly unconnectable. Research shows us that being in a state of play makes us more likely to do exactly that. Play helps us unlock brand new ways of thinking. In fact, many groundbreaking innovations can be drawn back first to music. The mechanics of the earliest pianos made people ask, what if those hammers struck letters instead of notes? That gave us the writing harpsichord. Today, what we'd call a typewriter. Punch cards that made first programmable computers work? Music boxes. Labs projects, an express day, our hackathon at Kenincarta, have yielded breakthroughs that might not be as world-changing, but have served up plenty of joy. I just thought of another project that either came out of Express Day or one of the earlier forward days was the uh, beer vending machine that we have in the office mm-hmm. um, that is now mostly repurposed for, um, oh shoot, I forget the name. It's the fizzy water that everyone likes. Yes. LaCroix is the fizzy water that briefly escaped Lauren's mind. She's referring to Vendor, the smart beer vending machine born out of a company-wide hackathon day. Beer was replaced with LaCroix only when our new office upgraded to a kegerator. Speaking of beer, play is also a critical part of social development. Playful wrestling not only helps bears practice how to defend themselves, but they also learn how to get along, how to be close to one another, and not, you know, kill each other. In short, play teaches us how to empathize and cooperate. Lauren says that part of the joy of a labs project is that it can feel like an improv exercise. If you're familiar with the concept of yes and, it's a lot of yes anding other ideas and there's a lot of good feedback that happens, a lot of good bouncing ideas off of each other and everything. And there's, I think, because there's less pressure to like have a button up idea because everyone's kind of in that same headspace of play. Removing the usual requirements and consequences of a client project makes bouncing ideas around a little easier, which makes us trust each other more, become better collaborators for when it really counts. 
Dave Clark says it's why creating room for experimentation is so important. And when you're experimenting, you have to be comfortable with being wrong. There's going to be lots of things that don't go the way you expect them to. And that is an important part of the process. Because I think that if you just, if all it is is setting yourself up to prove what you assumed, you don't really get to much innovation and you don't get to much you know, enjoyable experience, to be honest. So, is play something that can be practiced? That's what we asked Brian Burkhardt, founder and chief word guy at a company called Square Planet Presentations. I think it's mission critical to think of play as a skill that can be developed, engineered, and enhanced over time. The thing that has really worked for us is to actually build structure around it. A large portion of the work Brian and his team does is creating immersive live event experiences for businesses. Even during COVID-era virtual events, Brian says creating playful experiences for attendees is not just a luxury, but a must-have. It's things like in a virtual world, we encourage our clients to do things like if you're having your event on a Thursday, have a, a chunk where you call it Furs Day. And that means you bring your little critter with you. You bring your dog or your kitty and you put it on your lap for Furs Day. It was Taco Tuesday. On Tuesday afternoon, everyone was encouraged in advance to get ready, move your computer to the kitchen because we're going to cook and eat together. It's really, really easy to look at all of those different parts and think of them as an utter waste of time. And yet they are the most human of all of the elements. Brian says he believes a playful mindset at work means letting no opportunity go to waste. Over the years, the deliberate habit of play has taken many forms. Marketing campaigns become things like Square Planesta, a fictitious prescription medicine for executives who suffer from poor communication habits, complete with pill bottles filled with orange jelly beans. Team meetings get kicked off with gong songs, where employees are required to compose a short rhyming poem before striking a small gong. His team made a habit of thinking with a playful mindset in order to help his clients do the same. It becomes so ingrained in his brain, Brian says he can't help himself. Just this past Christmas holiday, I sent a client uh, an embroidered Square Planet coat. And before I put it in the box, I just grabbed some post-its and I made little jokes about his favorite football team, which is the exact opposite of my favorite football team. And I planted those little pieces of paper inside the pockets of the coat, knowing that he'll eventually find them and he'll laugh. This has been a fascinating topic to dive into. And I think what everything keeps pointing to in my mind is that it's all about the process. For something like a labs project, the simple removal of delivery for clients shifts the purpose to the process itself, which is what play is all about, relishing the act itself. It's the tech engineering user experience version of saying, stop and smell the flowers. The biggest challenge in my mind, how do you make these things habitual? How else can we find ways to incorporate play more routinely into our lives? To explore this further, we were lucky enough to sit down with Dr. Bo Stierna Thompson, Chair of Learning Through Play at the Lego Foundation. Thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be here. My role is the Chair of Learning Through Play in the Lego Foundation. So I equip the organization with uh, research and insights on children's learning through playful experiences. And I help disseminate this knowledge across the different Lego entities, whether it's the Lego Group, uh, Lego Education, the Lego Foundation, or broadly across our partnerships. 
into also external advocacy, working with institutions, with governments, educational partners, parents, and companies. So the key thing is really to build our knowledge and understanding of how children learn and the skills they develop through play and making sure it's on top of mind of any of the work we do across the entities. What are some of the specific programs that you do that might help people put a little more context around some of the work or some of the things you feel you're most proud of or most impactful about the work that you've done? So the critical point, obviously, for the Lego Foundation is that play is so crucial for children's healthy development and for learning for a range of different skills creativity and critical thinking and collaboration, but also a depth of understanding, really understand things better when you have opportunities to test and try out things that are based on your interests. So that deep understanding of the role of play, we want to bring to the systems level. We want to change the understanding of how play is used in education among educators and schools. We want to help parents be equipped to support play in their own life and with children. And we want to change, you know, the governments and uh, educational systems to focus more about the engagement, the enjoyment in the learning process instead of traditional standardized outcomes. So we work with parents and parenting programs with partners all over the world, uh, international partners like UNICEF also. We work in more than 30 countries. We work with uh, governments to change educational systems to focus much more about the quality of materials and interactions and support uh, of children. Uh, and we work with teachers and teacher professional development. So we have uh, a support for many of the stakeholders to, that are at the core of supporting children's, uh, children's lives. That's great. I think one of the key things that's interesting to me is you know the role of parents playing with children. And so, and I've definitely seen that where some parents are far more active uh, in playing with their children and some are not. And so I, I just wonder what, what have you found is what's that sort of resistance to playing with the children? Is it they did not play with their parents as children? Is it just sort of like, well, I don't think that's done or people too busy or is it, is it a lot of different things going on? Yeah, I think what, what we see is generally from some of the big studies, like uh, we had a, a Lego Play Well report uh, some years back. Parents really value play. Like they see it as extremely important to cope with stress, to be emotionally relaxed, to enjoy things together. And they also see it valuable for learning. But I think there's a few different challenges. One of them being that obviously any parent has strong hopes for their children and for them to succeed in life. And basically, many of the things that uh, are set up in terms of our success criteria is mostly done in terms of educational success or work life or living up to grades. So, of course, it's difficult sometimes for parents to navigate that there are certain kind of expectations into the educational system that, that are not necessarily good aligned with play. The other thing is that the mindset about play is really about flexibility and adaptability. And sometimes parents and adults generally, you know, we often take a role of more structure and want to make sure that things works and things are in place. <laughs> it's crucially what we see from research, that the mindset of a parent heavily influences what uh, children's opportunities are to, to, to play and to learn. So if you have a flexible parenting style, you're open to inspiration, you can adjust kind of your evening dinners, your route to school and so forth. That also reflects on the child's ability to be creative, to be flexible and so forth. So their own style and the way they go around life to be more flexible is something that equips children. And then, of course, children need like a broad range of opportunities to play. 
So seeing that opportunity that it's not only about recreation and going on the playground and climbing the trees or necessarily playing with Lego bricks, it's also about seeing the opportunities to adjust and test and try out things in your everyday life. Like, uh, again, how do you just a little bit with your evening dinners? How do you invite in to experiment a little bit with uh, what you eat and what you do and the activities you do in your free time? So there's something around the mindset. You know, play is so important, but it's actually more a range of different skills, but also adjust that into everyday life. That's great. One of the things that we talk about in the episode is the importance of play being self-directed. And I think, is that something that you guys work with or talk about at the, at the Lego Foundation? Yes. So what we see from research is that play is kind of on a spectrum. Like children learn immensely through playful experiences. Um, so they develop socially, they understand their own kind of uh, competencies, they regulate emotions, um, they keep attention mm. and so forth. So there's a range of different ways that children develop. You need to equip children to make their own decisions, to yeah. be lifelong learners and to enjoy that learning process. But if you look at towards more balance between also sometimes children need to understand certain concepts like mathematics or language or certain principles in the home, that's where guidance is sometimes more mm. appropriate. You know, that's where things are completely new, that something really needs to be done fast or something highly socially complex. So playing for self-directed learning in the form of open-ended are certainly the ones that are equipped for the most broad range of skills. But sometimes you need to guide to use games or to instruct in certain conditions to help scaffold that, um, uh, that support. I think you mentioned a little bit that there might be situations or topics where, you know, play is inappropriate. Like, where, where do you feel like it's not valuable in the, in the learning process? I think it's, uh, it's an interesting question because I would say when we think about play where we define it is that it's an active process. Mm. So you're like doing something. It's practical. It's uh, inherently enjoyable. Also, even if it's challenging, because when things are sparking questions and uh, some surprise and wonder, you want to persevere for longer. And it's something where you're allowed to test and try out things. I would say in that case, children plays what children naturally do when they don't understand things, when they want to deal mm. with changing conditions. In that case, that's not really an appropriate way to do that unless you are, have very limited time <laughs> because you get into a depth of understanding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or unless there are, of course, critical concepts that need to be known for immediate use. But when we think more broadly about the skills we need to develop and creativity to collaborate, to have depths of understanding, you know, the principle of play is used in the most circumstances, even for adults. I think like one of the things we are questioning is sort of how does that transition happen? So at a certain point, I think we all get the message that play is for children. Now it's time to grow, grow up and stop enjoying things. Uh, and so, you know, is, is that what you see uh, as well? Or do you, do you see people successfully uh, maintaining that spirit of play, um, you know, as they grow into adults? And how, how, do, you, how do you foster that? I think it's very apparent from the life we're in right now uh, and from looking at the ones who succeed, whether in education or in, in work life, that the ones who do that well are the ones who play. Yeah. So the ones who sustain this opportunity to test and try out things, to have a positive mindset and to engage in things that interest them, not because they just have to. They are the ones who are more adaptive, more flexible, uh, more creative. So what seems to be the case is that the things that are in the everyday work life, we need to deal with things that are not necessarily clear from the outset. We need to collaborate on complex problems. If you look into a kindergarten, that's exactly what children do. 
Like they're messing around with things. They're trying to collaborate with the children that don't really know what to do. And they're testing out different options. They're pretending. So what seems to be more the challenge is sometimes you create an educational system that tries to break in the habits of clear expectations, uh, time slots, opportunities uh, where you sit alone. Instead of working with the benefits of play, where you have allowed to test and try out, do projects and small experiments. So I think work life nowadays is very similar to how children naturally learn and collaborate and are creative in their early years. We just need to sustain that throughout life. That's great. And I think, I think what's resonating with me a lot is when you say play is on a spectrum, right? So I think a lot of people, when they hear play at work, they start thinking, oh, it's going to be uh, one of these uh, trust building exercises that I hate, <laughs> or um, it's going to be, we're going to put in a, a ping pong table and we're done. Right. But I, I, I think the key thing I'm getting from you and that we've seen as well is that it's a playfulness mindset, a play mindset to bring it to, like you said, when I, when I confront a problem, instead of being you know frustrated by it, or maybe I am frustrated by it, but how can I approach this in a way um, that is, you know, it's an unknown situation. So how can I bring an experimental playfulness to this to help me better understand how I might solve this or how I might approach it in an unexpected way? Mm-hmm. So with that said, like I think you said, like, you know, if we can sort of bring that sort of kindergarten mentality to uh, our lives now, what do you feel like adults can learn from watching how, how children in kindergarten learn or, or young children learn? So, so the key thing that certainly we can learn from adults is this mindset that you began to illustrate. So when we approach situations in our work, we need to think about starting to test and try out what it is and be open to uh, alternative outcomes. And I think that's a mindset that also is needed in the workplace to say the outcomes that we expect from our work does not need to be understandable from the first instance. We need to be open to new solutions and to alternative uh, results. If the results are just fixed and we already know what they are, you know, it limits our opportunity to experiment. So that openness to work with others, openness for inspiration and curiosity, well, inside, outside company is critical. Another thing that is quite critical for, for the role of play and our ability to be creative and, and innovative is the stimulation with the right range of experiences. So often office spaces or adult life is quite rigid. You know, we have a pen and paper, you might have a limited word document or something like that. But, you know, play and, and creativity in the broad range of skills really thrives when you have multiple materials to represent things mm. with. So it's not completely off and we have whiteboards and we have Lego bricks and we have multiple tools and we have mind, mind um, using to brainstorm arcs and so forth. And we can express our feelings and thoughts in multiple ways in, in, in the workplace. And I think it's good to recognize, as you say, with the spectrum that adults as children need different types of approaches. Some needs more guidance to say, you yeah. know, you work with these milestones can you try to change it a little bit to improve and observe what you do reflect with others where others are just completely into, you know, let's try these different things, get ideas up on the wall. So people have different preferences and leadership needs to support how different people are engaged and motivated. I think the bottom line is play in the workplace does exist. We just don't call it play. We call it engagement. Yeah, so maybe we just need to, to rebrand and, and remarket play as, as uh, innovation or experimentation. How do you suggest that people deal with, I, I know, and I run into this sometimes, is whenever we're trying to do this, this sort of innovative experiment of things, even if it's just like, there's an exercise we do called crazy eights, where you're supposed to eight minutes, one minute to sketch rapidly out your idea, right? Uh, and, and continually in those exercises, uh, we get people saying, I'm not creative. Have you run into that? And how have you encouraged people 
to sort of overcome that uh, negative inhibition? It's quite important to first state that creativity exists across all units and functions. It's not only the designers, the artists, and, 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 and so forth who are creative. You can be creative by changing your spreadsheet or uh, hopefully not too much in accounting, but, but in different <laughs> ways, you, you, you need to break down that anyone can bring an idea. The, sec- the second thing is that it's really about a process. So 90% of creative processes follow the same kind of, uh, of script. Like First and foremost, you really need to connect to what people understand and what their interests are. Many people are reluctant to jump completely into a field they don't know. So start mm-hmm. by connecting to say, what is your expertise? Uh, where do you come from? What can you build in terms of your knowledge? Because creativity is built on knowledge. The second thing is to work on the process of experimentation. We call it the explore phase. So that's really where you say, you put the posters up, you explore what the ideas are, you begin to compare them, but it's based on inherently what the interests are uh, from the start. And finally, it's a transformation process where you share with others. So help people gradually share their ideas in uh, trusted environments, you know, whether you present it to a colleague, whether you try to meet a customer or maybe due to the family. So really about this reality checking of ideas. But for us, it's really about instilling the confidence that, that ideas exist everywhere. That's great advice. There's a program from Lego called Serious Play. A couple of our coworkers, Max Young and Justin Petticore, They've run some workshops here and they've been really uh, successful. So uh, if you're familiar at all with that, would you mind talking a little bit about that? And, and how does that sort of fit into what we've been talking about? So, yeah, uh, Lego Serious Play is, uh, is basically a tool that allows you to facilitate decision making or complex discussion using physical Lego bricks. And it's based on a few key principles of play, which first and foremost is the best way to discuss principles of leadership concepts is to make it visible. So you take Lego bricks and you represent your ideas by building small models, first individually. So whether it's a collaboration, whether it's a thing that you deal with in your workplace, you build a little model of it, and then you present this model. And the presentation is non-judgmental. So you present your ideas to others and it's physical. And the next stage is that you begin to do a collaborative model. Let's say if your idea and my idea comes together in a shared model, and we do that with small keywords. What this process does is it allows anyone who sits with ideas inside the head to mm. send it with physical models and keywords. And it supports a process hands-on where you collaborate and combine and share ideas. And then you can discuss the plans afterwards. What is based on neuroscience is, you know, when you get a physical three-dimensional model, more people are able to understand the concept because they see it from different dimensions. It's physical and tangible. That allow for easy understanding, externalization of ideas, and for easier ways to collaborate. And then it's a kind of, you know, a trusted environment. You know, you are playing and can recombine and, and combine. So actually, when children, it's based mm-hmm. on children's natural way of play. In situations like this right now, what are you thinking? What are your emotions? What are your feelings? Make them practical and real life. Then we can talk about them. And then we can take that emotion and that state you're in right now and we can rebuild it to something that's better or more optimistic or a different situation. Great. Now, did you play with Legos as a kid? I did. I did play a little bit with Lego bricks. We didn't actually have the opportunity in my family to have that many Lego bricks. So I was a wide range of, uh, of play, mostly outdoor I grew okay. up in a forest and all kind of sports. But I did experiments in my life and I did have different types of blocks and, 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 and a little bit of Lego bricks. Did you favor, uh, I, there's sort of two schools as I see it in Lego, like unstructured, like you're the kind like I want to build whatever I want to out of these bricks or some people like I want to open a kit 
I want to follow the directions and I want to build it so it looks like the thing on the box. So that's a fantastic example because that's also what we hear sometimes, right? That there's someone who really wants the building instructions. It's a complex model. How do we go through that as a problem-solving exercise? And others were really diving in and testing and trying out things. I was probably in the latter camp of diving in and testing and trying <laughs> ideas. What we have seen, nevertheless, is that actually the balance between the two and the thing in the middle is one of the mm. most interesting things. So let's say you, uh, you, there's, a, there's a child or an adult who really want to sit with the building instructions, like I also do sometimes to relax in the evening. I get to the model, but let me try to recombine it. Let me try to combine the Star Wars, you know, with, uh, <laughs> with the market sector set here, to yeah. try to scaffold a little bit in between. But also what we've seen is when you're something who really want to dive into ideas, sometimes also help with a little challenge, a little project to say, could we build an, a new car or could we try to represent this problem? In working in this field, I mean, how do you personally incorporate play in your life and in your work? So first and uh, foremost, uh, I would say in my life, I'm fortunate to be very inspired by my children. So uh, particularly these times, they are all around me. So <laughs> I always find the opportunity like they do to ask questions and to be curious. What are really the reasons why we're doing this? How can we do it better? Um, so a lot of my work is to, to understand the questions and the meaning behind things. Um, secondly, you know, what we do a lot in my work is to represent things in different ways, as I said. So obviously PowerPoint and text, uh, but also sometimes our planning meetings, even our board meetings, we set up like small games. Hmm. So trying to think about scenarios always, like maybe there are two or three different ways we can think about approaching this. What are the different types of uh, paths we can choose and how can we represent it? But I think generally in kind of the everyday and modern workplace, the key thing that drives people's enthusiasm is positivity and engagement and collaboration with others and the opportunity to come up with different ideas for a challenging problem. So I'm, I'm fortunate to say it be in an area where things are quite complex and, and there are opportunities to experiment. When you're talking about that, it just made me think about the first time about changing things up. Like you go into a meeting and maybe something is different than what you expected already it kind of shifts your mindset. And I can, I can remember very distinctly the first time I walked into a classroom and instead of the chairs being all set up in rows and columns, the teacher had arranged them in sort of pods of four. And just sort of that, that, that challenge of now it's different, even though it was the same exact classroom, it was the same desk, it was the same teacher. But now, now it freed me up as to say like, oh, something is different today. I'm going to do something different. Yeah. I think that's a very nice example. There's these small twists you can do, whether it's uh, where you sit and work, where we move around in our office spaces, or where it's how chairs are used. So that, that's a good way of injecting some, some uh, spontaneity and, and innovation into what you're doing. Now, I know that you're, you're not on the, the Lego manufacturer side of the business, but are there any plans to introduce some kind of smart Lego that can detect when you're about to step on it? and roll into a ball so it will no longer be painful, kind of like a reverse porcupine? Is that, is that in the works somewhere? Please, please tell me it is. No, no, it's not. It's a great idea. I think I'll bring that onwards. It's, uh, it definitely solves a problem so that I can resonate with. Yeah, I think, I think everyone um, who has had children or has been a child has had that yeah. very, very painful experience that you're like, I love you, Lego. Why did you betray me so? It's very painful. Oh, it's, good. it's good if it's around. Um, uh, everywhere and available. So uh, maybe you don't build it with your feet, but it's good to have available. You know, like I said, one of the things we're a technology company, and so we're always interested in that. And I know that 
Um, you know, obviously Lego has huge impact, you know, when, when the Lego company moved into robotics. Um, and, and again, I don't think that uh, technology is necessarily inherent to play, but uh, sometimes I think people also seem like technology can be antithetical to play and sort of remove a lot of the things that we talked about, about uh, self-direction or making your own connection. So I guess, how do you see technology and play uh, collaborating together effectively? And where do you feel like it might get in the way of play? That's a great question uh, and, and something we discuss and, and do a lot of research around. I think first and foremost, you know, technology comes from the word techni. It's a tool, like a tool for something else, or a medium mm-hmm. and so forth. So, you know, bricks are tools to represent ideas and come up with many ideas and test and throughout things. We did a big study now recently on children's use of technology and play. And I think the main challenge people begin to have is to understand that it's too passive when you sit just with a screen, you know, navigating different types of content and information that's mostly streaming. And what the key advice now seems to be going in is we need to think much more about technologies as social technologies. So things where children can share, ideally collaborate, ideally comment and chat at the same time. So they don't sit isolated alone uh, with technologies. And second thing is it really needs to be technologies where you take initiative, not only to pick a video and download, but where you're setting your own goals and you're creating your own experiences. Hmm. So when you create things, whether it's a story, whether it's uh, an image, whether it's something where you develop a new game, that's a critical part of the most value of technologies. And then what we have seen is that the most interesting use of technology is actually when adults are engaged. So children and adults are together. It's similar like Lego bricks. You know, both adults and children have a passion for it and can co-build. The key thing that seems to be a, a huge need going forward is also a greater diversity in the use and design of technology. Because sometimes we design particular types of technologies only with one type of family, a child, a user. But think more about platforms. And one of the new studies that come out right now is to think more about these more platform-based technologies as a thing that will heavily influence not only the use of technology as adults in the company, but also education. There's truly a radical transformation that can happen with education to think more about a new way of using technologies. Yeah. Again, I, uh, my children grew up sort of post this era, but what I've seen of uh, Minecraft, I think, seems to be one of those, when, I, when you said platform, that kind of, or a thing like Minecraft, I know there's other variations out there, which would allow for both collaborative, undirected, and, and freeform play, where people are just, there's no, there's no inherent end to that. Exactly. I think the, the Minecraft is, is one of, of many, but a really good example. And we're actually coming out with research just, in, just quite soon where we study particular platforms like Minecraft and the research behind it. One of the things it can do is certainly it naturally triggers student engagement and child engagement. They're passionate about it. And also support these broader skills because you're making choices, you're creating things, you're collaborating with others. But what the, the big opportunities are is it can be adapted. It's like Lego bricks. So if you have a particular topic or situation, you know, children build like scenarios of COVID-19 where, mm. uh, you know, inhabitants turn into zombies and, and you can build your own environment, <laughs> geography and, and, and curriculum yeah. and so forth. But also it changes our perspective of assessment. Because usually we think about standardized assessment and sitting still down for a period of time and then being assessed uh, in terms of um, something that's more quantifiable. But here you have assessment. You know, it's visual like Lego bricks and you can comment and discuss things. 
And then what seems to be crucial for technologies going forward is that it can bridge the different settings that children are in. Sometimes children play with something mm. at the home and then they switch to school to do something else and then they yeah. go to the community. This is a community where the same type of platforms and technologies like this, you bring from school to home to the community, you interact with parents and teachers. So there's something inherent about exactly what you're saying. These types of technologies are actually something that will revolutionize, I believe, the way we think about play and learning and also about education. Great. I'd just like to wrap up with, again, the things that you're talking about, I think are great, but for some people, they're going to be foreign or difficult or like people who think that I'm not creative. So I think it's always easier to, to make some kind of small, if there's some small concrete step that somebody could take today after listening to this podcast to say, here's one thing you can do in either your home life or your work life to sort of rediscover the joy of play. What would you suggest? I, I must say, first and foremost, one should go to the playlist uh, at the Lego Foundation. So we, uh, <laughs> we, we realized that this is a, a increased in need and we need to find that opportunity again because it released so much positive emotions and think about possibly about the future after COVID-19 if you play. So there's a playlist at legofoundation.com. And what it does is actually a range of different small activities you can do when you have five, 10 minutes of things uh, and things in your environment. So whether it's uh, quickly folding a paper into a paper mm. plane and making small competitions with paper planes, or whether it's making a little uh, obstacle course in your home, but it could also be, I think, it's really about the small things like this. Okay, are we doing the same thing now for dinner? Or can we change one ingredient? Let's mm. try to do something a little different. Or, you know, let's be surprised about when we take a walk or take a different route to work. Let's try to do that a little different and try to identify a new thing we haven't seen before. But I think sometimes it's a little bit working a little bit on these new ideas. And, um, and in most instances, it's also about, you know, finding better ways to build and make things and share what we're feeling and thinking because that's the social process of, of playing is the most fun. Yeah, absolutely, Bo. It's been great. You've given us a lot to think about and I really appreciate you spending time with us today. Yeah, great. It's a pleasure talking to you. Exciting. Thank you very much. And now, straight from her living room to your ears, it's our own Katie Pooler bringing us Cooler Terms with Pooler and Herms. Hey, Katie, how's it going? Oh, pretty good, Scott. How are you? I'm feeling great. I'm feeling good. I'm really loving this episode so far. Uh, I think, you know, I think this is something definitely we both share is a love of play. And, you know, I think it's why Max reached out to us with this idea to even do this segment, because he'd seen the kinds of things that we do at work, I think, to sort of bring both our, you know, our personality, the things we love, and also just to make, you know, the, the make the day a little more fun. For me, having fun is very serious. So my official title is, you know, IT specialist for CDS. My unofficial title is CFO, chief fun officer. And I may or may not have business cards that, that say as such. So, like, if... If you were to encourage somebody to do this at their workplace, like, you know, who's not, you know, maybe they, they are a person who, like me, was sort of hiding their personality or hiding that aspect of their personality in their workplace, like, how would you advise them to go about it? We had one of our execs just hand me a very old laptop once. And so I get handed, I get handed a lot of, if it has a plug, somebody will usually just come drop by my desk and say, 
ah, you probably know what to do with this. Right. And I'm like, ah, not really, but sure. And I, so I, I love props. And so when I see something, I'm thinking, what fun can I have with this? (laughs) I'm like, this clearly has no purpose for me. What fun can I have? So what I did was I, I held onto this laptop for the perfect moment for six months. And I walked around the office like I was holding the laptop and I pretended to fall. And so I tripped myself and fell and then like very clearly fumbled the laptop in midair and it it crashed on the ground. Everybody like it's that moment of like, oh, no. And so they saw me just get up and like run away and um, and it may and then you can hear everybody laughing afterwards and it's just this, this like laugh break and it only took it was like just a brief thing for from everybody's day but it's something that we still talk about and I had a lot of fun doing and it it brought it brought some joy and it didn't hurt anybody I, I think what you did there it, it lines up with what I think about too is like am I the butt of the joke yes right like is anybody hurt by this or is it you know or will it be immediately clear that it was just uh, me fooling around, right? What I struggle with is, I don't know, maybe I have this sort of negative counterexample in my mind of like the fun boss. I don't know, there was an old Mr. Show skit and we talked about this where, you know, I uh, got it when I looked it up, it's, uh, now I've just forgotten the name. Ah, uh, Katie, yes. I believe that was uh, during Mr. Show season two, uh, the skit's work is play with Greg Sniper, principal stakeholder of Mr. Show, pays a visit to the set and uh, disruption and hilarity ensues. Yes. Uh, you know, so anyway, where it's like this enforced fun where people are trying to do work and he's like, all right, everybody conga line or all right, everybody, you know, nerf gun fight. And, you know, it all honestly, uh, you know, sometimes in the early days of Solstice, it would get to be that bad. Like it would get to be there would be full blown like nerf wars going on and somebody would be going by on a scooter and you're on the phone trying to convince, you know, some bank why that your project is, you know, is going to come out on time under budget and be fully working the way they want it to. Yeah, I admittedly, I would probably be one of those people. Um, <laughs> it's a fine line. It's a fine line. And it requires a lot of self-awareness. It requires a lot of social awareness. The end result people see is is laughter or people having a good time, which is, again, a, we attribute to not being serious. But in reality, what I'm doing, you know, in a situation is is very serious. And I'm doing it's very purposeful. Like I think like a classic go to if you're working in an agile environment, like stand ups, always a great time to try and, you know, there. That's where I would inject the play. Right. Like make sure you get your thing done. I've given my status, but maybe I'll give it in a funny way or maybe I'll, you know riff on something that somebody else said, you know, or something like that. Just look for those little, don't overthink it. Don't like try to make it like, oh, okay, we're going to go play. I'm going to come in dressed as a walrus today, though that would be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> just, and just and the whole, whole time deny you're dressed as a walrus. <laughs> what are you, is it, did I have something? Did I not, is this lettuce? What are you looking at? <laughs> but that's not the place to start. Right. I just want to, people to be able to be themselves. I think when I started at Solstice, you know, back when it was Solstice, and it had to have been my second week or so, and I found this old microphone that wasn't being used for anything. And once again, I have this prop mind where I look at something, I look at an object and I go, 
what what can I do? Well, how much fun can I have with this? And when people would come into the IT office to ask for stuff, I would interview them. <laughs> so it would be like someone coming in saying, my computer's making this weird noise or something like that. And I would immediately pull this microphone from next to my desk and say, that's great, Mike. Do you prefer pens or pencils? And then I'd put the mic <laughs> phone. And so that was how I got to know people. Yeah, Katie, the more I think about it, what you said earlier really resonates strongly with me of like, if you're if you're making jokes just to be funny, don't do it. If you're making if using humor as a way to make other people more comfortable, to learn about people, to make a better working environment. That's the right motive. That's what I generally try to do. Like, can we get people comfortable talking? Right. And and again, I wouldn't recommend this, but I, I once and then not at this job at a, at a previous job, uh, I hired a guy uh, and a lot of it was because he joked about drinking bourbon during the interview. Like, I mean, he was also well fit for the job. Right. He had all the technical skills like humor. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like he was like, oh, this this is full of bourbon. That's the only way I'm getting through this interview. <laughs> And it may have been true. I don't know. Maybe he has a serious alcohol problem and I was a cry for help. But uh, uh, we hired him and he was great. That's good. <laughs> this is a true story because all my other stories have been false. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, they've also all been true. Um, but in my first, I think she was actually my second day at Solstice. And I was at a, we were at our team meeting and I was doing an introduction and they said, well, like, okay, Katie, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are your hobbies? And I'm in front of all these people that I don't know. I, what I ended up saying was, hi, like, my name is Katie. And you know what? I like to play outside. And I guess I, uh, I, guess I like to play inside, too. <laughs> in the end, I think, like, I, I like, I'll go back to it again, Katie. I just like what you said. Like, you know, if you're doing it just to be funny, then you're probably not doing it for the right reasons. If you're doing it to build connections, to help put people at ease, to foster communication, to just, you know, to make the day better, right? What I, I think is really, really awesome about about this is this may be, this is probably the most, the, seri- the most serious episode of Cooler Terms. <laughs> is the one about play. Yeah. All right. That's it for uh, Cooler Terms this week. We'll be back next episode uh, with the funny. Thanks, Katie. All right. Back to work. Play is a spectrum of activities. It can be playing make-believe with your children, but it can also be just asking yourself, what if and why? It is not always foosball tables and karaoke nights, though those are fun and play. It could be a hackathon or, or a fun question of the day, like from my work associate, Pranit. If you were stuck on a desert island with a lifetime supply of one condiment packet only, what would it be? Thanks, Pranit. Play is fun. Play is important. It helps us learn new skills. It makes us more resilient. It brings us together. It helps you be more creative in your life and at work. So how will you play today? What are you going to do to bring playfulness into your life? My advice? Start small. Do a little thing every day. Add a new ingredient to the same damn oatmeal with six raisins you've been eating for years. Put a kiwi on it, for God's sakes. Go out for a walk and make up a life story for the first person you see. Give your daily status in haiku form. Skip to work. Okay, maybe that last one's not so small, but I really, really want to make business skipping a thing. 
It's great exercise, it helps you stand out from the crowd, and you get where you're going ahead of your competition. Business skipping, the new way to beat your competition to the next opportunity. Oh, and one more thing. A company called Surprise Corporate America Merchandising has announced that the following lucky Working Better listeners have won a raffle for a brand new Tesla. Dan Kardaski, Jay Schwan, Kelly Manthe. Please send us your home address, email address, driver's license number, date of birth, social security number, favorite sports team, and name of your favorite childhood pet, and we will have that car shipped to you. Thanks to Bo Stierna Thompson for joining us. Please go check out the playlist that Bo mentioned at playlist.legofoundation.com. We'll include a link on our website as well. And also, thank you, Dave Clark, Lauren Blackburn, and Brian Burkhart for your time and expertise. This episode was produced, written, and edited by Max Parcell. Chris Mitchell is our sound designer and engineer. Luke Parcell wrote and recorded our theme song and all the other music you hear throughout the show. Additional editing by Ashley Higuchi and production support from Bell and Battisti. I'm Scott Herms. As always, be sure to subscribe to our show via your local podcast dealer. Love the show? Hate the show? Supremely ambivalent about the show? Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Snapchat, and let us know about all of your feelings. Or just sing them in a sea shanty. The ocean will carry your words to us, as it always does, as it always does. Thanks for listening, and see you next episode.